Hey everyone, it's Megan. I wanted to let you know that there is some misinformation in this episode. We talk about how audiologists are not required to be supervised, but with someone who holds the CCC, and we should clarify that to say that audiologists, audiology grad students are not required to be supervised with someone who pays for the CCC. But if that audiologist then wants to go on to pay for the CCC themselves, they have to make up any supervision hours after they graduate being supervised by someone with, you guessed it, the CCC. Just wanted to clarify that. And here's the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we are here to fix SLP. We are discussing the biggest challenges that are currently holding back the field of speech-language pathology. We present the issues with facts and invite you to be part of joining our movement to make things better, one conversation at a time. Let's fix SLP. Hello, Fearless Fixers. We're here for episode 12. Every single time Megan and I sit down to record, I always start with, oh my God, Megan, I cannot believe how much has happened. (laughs) Okay, first of all, kudos to Megan. She is like the brainchild behind all of this. I just sit here and act like a cheerleader and scream. Um, Not true. But (laughs) she has stumbled on so much information this week. We don't even have all of the posts out. Um, So I'm going to ask her in a minute to talk about something, but something else that has happened in a matter of 48 hours, we had two major, large, big hospital systems in Ohio reach out to us about organizing and gathering information about removing the CCC from job postings and from the requirements. And if this happens, oh man, the one hospital system has about 80 SLPs in it. And the other one has got to be double that. I mean, I'm familiar with both of these systems. This could impact hundreds of SLPs working in hospitals in Ohio. I am so proud of our Ohio Fearless Fixers. For working Ooh. on this, yes. Also, I it just so happened I I knew one of these people, but it was very random. She joined our platform to look for the information. It just so happened that she was the only one to follow us in like an hour's time. So her little follow was there alone, and I knew her name. And um, we've not worked together, but she has given me some amazing mentorship before. So I reached out and said hi. And she's like, oh, this is so coincidental. I just got on to get information. I'm like, I know her. Um, So it's not like this happened in Ohio because me, Jeanette, is in Ohio. This happened because our listeners are pushing their bosses to change verbiage. And it just so happens that I'm here and I'm a little bit more familiar. If you guys are doing this in your states, let us know if you want help, if you want to report what's going on. We want to hear from you because it is so important. So we will keep you posted. If this verbiage gets changed, we will be posting full pictures of full teams of fearless fixers on our socials. And so that's been a really big win. I just, because this is where I live too. And so to know that this is happening like right here at home, it's just, my heart is racing. 
Um, so yeah. it's so exciting. So Megan, today yes. you stumbled upon something <clears throat> about audiology. We we recently, like an hour ago ish, posted about it. Why don't you tell us what you found and what that what it means? Yeah. So. Uh, there's been a lot of content posted lately, sort of historical information. And for people who don't know, that's what my undergrad degree is in, is in history. And I feel like the more we know about our past, the more we know like why things are the way they are now. And there's a lot of history wrapped up in ASHA with audiologists. And there's there was kind of a split that happened that we'll be talking more about where audiologists went and did their own thing. And so there's the Academy of Doctors of Audiology and they obviously have their own interests in mind and they compete with ASHA. So we kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt, but because audiologists have multiple options instead of just ASHA and only ASHA, they do have more voices in the field sort of saying like, hey, this isn't right and that isn't right. And you can't push that without changing the language about this. And so one example of that is that ASHA does not require audiologists to be supervised by audiologists who pay for the CCC. And that's a double standard because SLPs are required to be supervised by someone with the CCC in order to obtain the CCC. And so I don't, I haven't been able to track down exactly why that's the case, but my assumption is that there's been pushback from the Academy of Doctors not in, of Audiology. Um, or another possibility is that there just aren't enough audiologists that are continuing to pay for the CCC. And ASHA recognizes that, and they know that they will get more customers and more money if they remove the requirement for the CCC to be required um, of supervisors. So we talk about that on Instagram, but basically that could be a direction that we head as SLPs. But since we don't have a different organization advocating for us, it's really just going to take supervisors having conversations with your organizations, employers, institutions, universities, et cetera, to just really start to critically examine if it makes sense that supervisors have to hold the C's or is that a conflict of interest because the Council for Academic Accreditation, which accredits SLP grad schools, is run by ASHA and ASHA makes millions of dollars every year by selling their certification program. Yeah. And like, as a... I don't want to call myself an academic because we've been over here like saying <laughs> about academics. But as a PhD working in academia, one of the biggest things I've been getting contacted about is how all of this is going to affect our students. This is it right here. Audiologists don't have to do it. Why do we? This is such a simple change they could make that would make everybody happy. Wait, one yeah. simple change. Now, they won't be happy because it will impact their pocketbook. And so I don't think they're going to go down without a fight. There isn't another organization fighting for us, like you said. So here we are. Fix SLP. Let's fix it. But we can't do this alone. It, it has to be, you know, like these two hospital systems that are reaching out and, and making these changes and 
it's just going to take all of us doing it to, to make it happen. And so changing this verbiage is where we start getting this verbiage changed is, is the biggest thing we should all be working on right now until we come out with another call to action that includes, and this is where I'm going to plug this as we get ready to move on to our topic that includes sharing our content, sharing our content is so important because we need to grow the base of people who follow us. So when we have a big call to action, whether it be writing letters to the board, going to your employer, I don't know, a lawsuit, I don't know what it's going to be. But when we get to that point, we need people on our team. And so the more people that are following us, the bigger our army is, the more impact we will have. So sharing our content. One way you can do that is clicking share on your socials, tag us when you tag us, we reshare. Um, or everybody press pause right now. Go give us a five star review on where you're listening. I could be wrong, but I think the only place you could can write a review, Megan, is on Apple Podcasts. Has there been? Yeah, it depends on the podcast app. Okay, because yeah, Apple Podcasts, please. Yeah, someone reached out to us. She said, "I can't figure out how to write a review," and I don't think there was a place, and I I don't think there's a place on Spotify either. But Apple Podcasts write us that review. It's so important because it will show up higher in suggestions to other SLPs. Um, And, you know, it just, we are still in that top 100 list, which is so exciting. No one's looking at it, but us, but (laughs) yeah, that's please take a pause, go rate and review us. um, And that's another great way to share. So we're going to jump right in because I am today again on a time constraint. Megan, what are we talking about today? Okay, today we're going to take a look at how other professions regulate themselves. And so we're going to hear from 12 different people from 12 or 11 different professions and just see how they're all organized and regulated. And I think it's important to have this conversation because as SLPs, I think we, a lot of us just are like, well, this is the way it's always been. This is how it is. This is how everybody does it. This is just the reality. And this is how we ensure that we have the best quality therapists out there in the world. And I would just continue to argue that there are so many different ways to do things. There's different perspectives. There's different systems. Um, I was thinking about this before we recorded. And like in when I was living in New Zealand, I had to take my car in every six months and have it evaluated by a mechanic and that was that's the way that New Zealand keeps their roads safe or like instead of paying for someone to come pick up my trash I had to go to the grocery store and buy like these government stamped trash bags and that was their way of like basically taxing people who were creating a lot more trash than other people and so there's just like always different ways to do things and I think it's helpful to hear from systems outside of our own So we can start to get some perspective on the water that we're all swimming in. So we are going to start with Bethany, who is a counselor. My name is Bethany. I am a licensed professional clinical counselor. I am licensed by my state. I do not belong to my national association because I did previously as a new professional and did not renew my membership because I did not think that it added value. Um, I do not belong to my state association for the same reason. 
I do not purchase a national certification because one does not exist, although the counseling profession is beginning to look at forming a counseling compact in different states. It's great to have a compact. <laughs> I think we're all yeah. going in that direction. But it seems like she has a lot of freedom there. Yeah. And a lot of, like, she gets to decide what's important to her and if she feels like something's benefiting her. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I don't, I have a lot of, to say about some of these, but I think this was one where there's a lot of mental health professionals out there. There's a lot of them. And their national association could easily be forcing them to join for tons of money, but they are, you know, it's out there. It exists an interesting, no certification product created. So that that's a difference, right? Um, but they're also not being forced to join. Yeah. Okay. This is Dana. Is that right? Dina. 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 Yep. Dina. And can you tell us what a sanctions compliance officer is? She's ba- now I'm, she's probably not listening. I'm probably going to like tell you wrong, but she's, I think she's more of like a forensic accountant. So what she does is slightly secret. So, you know, I think she is more white collar crimes where she's looking into sanctions against companies who have committed crimes with money. And so okay. that, that I think in a nutshell Sorry, Dina, if I said that wrong, is what she does. My name is Dina. I'm a sanctions compliance senior officer. I am not licensed by my state. I do belong to my national association because my employer recommends it. I do not belong to a state association because they don't exist. I do purchase several national professional certifications because my prior employer required them for promotion but I've maintained them because I believe they add value. All right. I think this is one where I have something to say. I could see that because just um, for transparency, Dina is my sister-in-law. So I've known her for a long time and I've watched her career. And in accounting, you know, there's certain skills, almost like an SLP, there's certain skills that you need to have um, that you're not necessarily going to learn in school. Like accounting is such a big, broad area and so what she's doing is so niche that I, I can see like to get promoted and to be, you know, to move up the ladder, how she has needed to do some of these things. I think it's very, very profession specific though. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's not and enough. She did that. not have. She has a Nash. She has, she has a couple. She did not have a state license. Yes. No, there isn't one. And there's not an association. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's like when there's a gap, it's kind of like things just sort of shift around. So like if, if there's not a national certification or not a national association or there's not a state license, then I feel like certifications tend to come in and fill that gap or or if there is a national certification. Anyway, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just thinking like circling to SLP, how, oh, our CCC doesn't guarantee competency across the scope where there are enough of us where we could split into school or pediatric and healthcare or, you know, somehow make these tracks. But with mm-hmm. what he's doing, it is so refined and so niche. There aren't even enough students to create programs in that kind of thing. 
So you would need these extra certifications. And this is coming up too for um, someone else that I know who recorded that in order to do what she's doing, she has to get the training. And then, you know, she said she maintains them because she feels like they add value. I don't, I didn't ask her what is involved in maintaining them. I don't know if it's, you know, continuing education in that specific area or continued training. I, I could see even how, how they investigate crimes changes and, you know, the technology mm-hmm. changes. So she probably does need constant updating, I, you know, because she's, that's the job she's doing. I, cho- yeah. I, and when I watch her, like when I think about her, I chose the wrong field. I can't number. We know that from this podcast, but <laughs> man, if I was smarter, I'd be doing what she's doing. Okay. Next we have Emily, who is a registered dietitian. My name is Emily. I am a registered dietitian. Um, I am licensed with the state of Montana and um, I do not belong to my national association because I have felt as if um, I don't get much value from it Um, and I do not belong to my state association because I have to be, uh, I have to belong to the national association if I want to belong to the state. I do not um, have a national certification, one is not available for us unless you're getting some sort of uh, an advanced practice certification uh, in some specialty area. It's interesting that ASHA doesn't require you to be a member of ASHA to be a part of your state association. Oh my gosh, could you imagine the how the crowd would go wild if that were a thing, <laughs> if they tried to make that a thing? I, I mean, yeah. yeah, state membership would drop even further, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder or, what- Or, the- like, is there another model that we haven't thought of? I mean, I know ASHA puts a lot of money towards state associations. Like, maybe there could be some sort of hybrid membership where if you are, if you do pay for ASHA membership, then you get a discount to your state association membership or something to try to encourage- and offset the cost for these state associations and honor the fact that ASHA does provide a lot of support for them. Can I ask a question that I don't know the answer to? Do they provide a lot of support for them? Because there's money that's grant money, but they don't all get it and they have to apply for it. And it's not that much from what we've heard. Yeah. And they help with some advocacy, but what does that look like? Other than that, and we've learned that they only recognize one association. So if there's per state, so if there's more than one, like there is in Ohio, only one gets to benefit from ASHA. Yeah. So how much are they helping? Right. Yeah. And you think about, so there, I looked at their, somewhere I saw their recent budget was looking more like closer to $80 million for this fiscal year or maybe last year and yeah like you just think about like if a chunk of that money went towards the states then asha could stop saying like oh that's a state issue that we can't be involved in i mean i don't there's probably lots of reasons why a national association can't have 50 different arms but they do i don't know like why but they do they do what it appears 
the optics of it look like they do when it's convenient for them. And they don't when it's yeah. not convenient for them. <laughs> Just saying. That's what it <laughs> appears to look like. I have no proof. <laughs> okay. Moving on to He Ruth, who is an attorney. So my name is He Ruth. I am uh, in-house counsel for a company. I am licensed by my state. Um, with attorneys, the licensing process is a little different. We have what's called a bar exam. Um, so it's a two or three day test depending on the jurisdiction. Um, and once you pass the exam, you essentially are admitted to your state bar. There is no such thing as a national license for lawyers. Each jurisdiction has its own licensing requirements. The closest thing that we have to a national license is what's called a uniform bar exam. Currently, I think about like 40 or 41 states have adopted the uniform bar exam, which is essentially then a standardized examination, you know, standardized material, standardized questions, standardized scoring. Um, but each state that has adopted this exam can set its um, its own minimum minimum passing score. Um, and what that means is if you take the exam in your state, um, say Colorado, um, Colorado has a minimum passing score of, let's just say like 160. Um, if you score 160, you become licensed in Colorado. Um, say, um, for example's sake, Iowa has a minimum score of 165, um, and you only had 160, obviously you can't wave into Iowa, but if you had 165 as a passing scorer, um, from taking the Colorado bar exam, you could essentially transfer your passing score to Iowa and you would not need to retake an Iowa bar exam to get licensed there. Um, so it allows uh, reciprocity with states so long as you meet their minimum passing score requirement, you can transfer your score between the states that have adopted the uniform bar exam. And that made me realize that when I was looking at all the state licensing requirements, that nobody's listing praxis scores that need to be achieved. They're just, a lot of them are just going off of what ASHA will accept as a passing score. But I wonder too, with the interstate compact, if states are going to have to start just getting a little bit more specific and rather than being like the CCC or equivalent, they're going to need to say something like, a, a minimum score of X on the praxis and a graduate degree from an accredited program that has these classes in it, you know, like, and I think in that sense, they could do a better job than ASHA's doing. I mean, they're already 
meeting the same requirements that ASHA is requiring that they could potentially hold a higher standard. And like we've talked about introduce tracks or pathways to get licensed for specific settings. I think that's a change. So when I took the praxis, just age myself here, 17 years ago, um, states were listing scores. So when I took it, I failed for Ohio by five points, but I passed for Pennsylvania because the score and, the, and the, it probably changed when the praxis itself changed. So the praxis somewhere along the way changed. And even the reporting that universities get back from student outcomes changed. So that all of that was probably removed from licensure when the praxis changed and it was probably not added back in in many states. But prior to that, at least in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, there were there were passing score requirements. Yeah. And it could be that I'm, I just wasn't paying close enough attention, but I feel like that would be a detail that I would have seen and started to wonder about. So that's interesting. But there you go. Like attorneys who I think, I mean, I'm going to say this and then there will be a lot of people who disagree, but like they're held to a pretty high standard, like passing the bar is no joke. And so, but, and if that's the only thing that's regulating them and a state license, like why isn't that good enough for SLPs? Right. But that, but again, that speaks to the fact that paying $225 a year does not, it's not adding competency. <laughs> it's just costing us money. Yeah. Okay. So this next one is Ingrid, who is a pastor. My name is Ingrid. I am an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. I am not licensed by my state. I do belong to a national association um, where I am expected to stay in good standing by um, turning in yearly reports, by uh, doing particular continuing education requirements, um, specifically boundaries training, things of that nature. Um, I do not have state association that I am a part of, but I have a regional um, body that I am a part of as a part of my profession. I do not purchase uh, or do any national certification um, because one does not exist uh, in my occupation. Now, All right. oh. as, as the daughter of a pastor, <laughs> okay, that's me, PK. Um, I, he was not Lutheran. He was Methodist, but I, I'm going to take some assumptions here. Those things that she uh, is a part of, so that national organization and then her regional organization, those are free. She's not paying to be a part of those. So probably that national organization is, I don't know. Um, does she get to pick what churches? I think I think she does interview and then pick what church she gets to be a part of. Um, almost. I positive. mean, there's a whole process. Yeah, yeah it seems like. Yeah, but not in the Methodist Church. That regional organization, the bishop places you, so you don't get to pick where you live or where 
where you work. You every so many years, you get moved to a different part in the region. But I think in the Lutheran church, there's interviews and the those rebels, (laughs) this church chooses. Um, Yeah. So to be to be a Lutheran pastor, you probably have to be part of that national organization. You're likely not paying into that. And then locally, also, you're not paying into that. Lutherans out there, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm, if I were a betting gal, you know, the, the, the uh, Methodist church was founded on not drinking and not gambling. So I am not a betting gal, <laughs> um, but I will have a beverage. If I were betting, I would bet that those things are free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll just bet. I mean, it'd be interesting to have asked all of these people who, if they do pay a national association, yeah. like how much they're paying. I did ask a couple, so we haven't gotten to them yet, but I, okay. I have information on a, a couple of people, I think, or at least one. Yeah. And again, that, that also gets to, like, if you ask ASHA, they they pretty much see certification and membership as one in the same. And I think, I think a lot of staff at ASHA are confused by SLPs being so frustrated with that because they're like, what's the big deal? Like, just if you're going to join, like, just get the certification. Like, you have to have both anyway if you're going to be associated with ASHA. Yeah. Unless you want to pay for just the certification without the membership. But why would you do that when you can why? have journal access and whatever for 20 whatever dollars? There's so much value there. <laughs> so much value. Okay, this wait, is Jamie. Wait, one of, one oh. of our fearless fixers uh, where she did call to let go like to keep her C's, but not do the membership. And she did get the speech. I know we talked to someone oh. else, like they just, no, no, this one, it was like guilt city. And one of their points was, but then you won't qualify for the lifetime membership because you have to have so many consecutive years, which I think it's like 25 consecutive years or 30 years total. And she was like, eh no thanks. And she still went, <laughs> but she's like, they really like tried to That's convince so me funny. to do this. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you watched that Netflix series with the money guy? I can't remember his name. He's very trendy right now, but he, it's like a limited series and he works with people to create budgets and talk about their relationship with money and their money habits and all this stuff. And there's there's an episode in there with someone who's involved with net quote network marketing, which is basically pyramid schemes, yeah. multi-level marketing, blah, 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 that we've talked about. And I learned that like the Cadillac, she, it was like one of those where you could get a Cadillac. Oh, Mary Kay. That's Mary Kay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, this wasn't Mary Kay, but this was that oh. like the Cadillac was held over their heads as, as like a reward. But I learned that they don't actually give you a Cadillac in this organization. And maybe with Mary Kay, because you're you're shaking your head, but like they'll give you cash towards the payment of the car, and then you have to make up the rest of it, right? And then you're stuck with this car payment. <laughs> or it that used you to be a lease. Want to begin with? Oh yeah, it was the lease. Yes, it's a lease. Yeah. and then that's so you I don't mean, even get to keep it. I did get sucked into Mary Kay when I was in grad school because <laughs> I needed some hustle for some extra money. Um. And that's how it worked. It was a lease. And then yeah. you give it back after what, however much time. Yeah. Anyway, 
I mean, yeah, if you if you're not a member, you wouldn't qualify for the Ace Award. Oh, that Ace you, Award. I mean, I'm sure they have a whole and list of things that you wouldn't get, like the pink Cadillac. You wouldn't get that lifetime. And I don't, I mean, so I started this conversation with this fearless fixer. And I said, I just don't get the lifetime membership. Why would you want to continue to pay into something that you're no longer practicing in? But then I did have to take a step back, like thousand foot view. Again, it's these same older clinicians who really did work hard for the CCC. And and the CCC did mean something to them. And I think we need to continue to honor that and not like, you know, diss it sure. because it, it, it was it was important. It was, and we don't diminish that at all. So I could see how it is important for those people to maintain their CCC and, or maintain membership. And I said to this person, I have to wonder if in the next 20 years, this like lifetime membership, I don't know how many people have it right now. I have to wonder if it will go away because people just aren't purchasing the product. Right. Why would they? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a generational thing because like we're talking about in Instagram, like the, the roots of Asha, the beginnings of Asha were basically a group of men who wanted to create as exclusive of a scientific society as they possibly could. Like it was so exclusive that they only allowed five new members a year. So can you imagine like applying to like get to be part of ASHA? Right. And like if you were chosen, you were one of five people per year. Yeah. And then in 1952, they were like, oh, you know, we'll make a personnel SLP certification so that, you know, the rest of them can come in. And like, I'm sure like we've all seen scarcity marketing, like we know how it makes us feel. And like, we really want to like wait in line. <laughs> like be the first there to get this exclusive thing that we've been left out of for decades. Right. And like, that's that generation. Yeah. I, I, I always think about this. I mean, so many stars had to align, but my mother, God bless her. When I graduated from high school, she bought me a lifetime membership to the Girl Scouts of the USA. Now, I was active, it was like all these years ago, it was like four or 500 bucks. So back then that was a lot of money. And I, um, I hadn't even, I was still registering every year because I like to volunteer at the summer camps and, and help and work at those. But other than that, I wasn't really even involved but she felt like it was so important because she had been a Girl Scout. And so she got it for me. And and her like comment was, well, if you ever have a daughter someday, then it's taken care of. I mean, there are a lot of assumptions there. Like number one, that I'm going to want to have kids. Number two, <laughs> that if I want to have kids, I'm actually able to have them. Number three, if that all happens, that it's going to be a girl. Number four, <laughs> that then that girl will want to be in Girl Scouts. And then five, that I have the time and ability to lead a troop. Now I am leading a troop. Which you are doing. We are amazing. (laughs) But I mean, a lot, truly a lot had to line up for all of that to happen. And I have always thought, what a freaking waste of money. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it is benefiting me now. I've done the math. If I, keep this troop until she graduates, it will have saved me a significant portion of money. Um, $25 a year to be exact. 
but um, All right. that's if they don't raise the price. But yeah, like what a like what a racket. Because <laughs> how many people buy that that never do anything again after the age of 18? Yeah. Oh, it's what I always think about when I think about the lifetime membership Wait. of Asha. I'm like, this is like my lifetime membership of Girl Scouts. Whew. Oh, yeah. maybe someday I'll have a granddaughter. So she volunteers with our troops. She has to pay to register every year. So maybe that like if the stars continue to align, I'll have a grandchild someday involved in Girl Scouts and I can go to the meetings for free. <laughs> I don't like kids, by the way. <laughs> Okay, let's keep going. Okay. This is Jamie, who's a nurse. Hi, my name is Jamie. I'm a registered nurse in the state of Ohio. I am licensed by the state of Ohio um, by exam. Um, I do belong to the National Association, which is the American Nursing Association. That membership runs about $50 a year. Um, I do not belong to the the Ohio Nurses Association's um, or association, there is different rates for union versus non-union members. And they play a lot of, um, they they participate in a lot of collective bargaining and my hospital that I work at is non-union. So, um, and I don't do a lot with the legislation and um, have much time from a personal standpoint to, you know, be the voice of change on the legal aspect of it. So I do not participate in the Ohio Nurses Association. And I do have a national certification. Um, I obtained that because the institution that I work for initially paid for the exam, which was $395. And I maintain that licensure every five years. Um, It is $375. Um, And you have to have a certain level of continuing education credits for to maintain that. Um, I believe it shows that I have specialization in the area that I practice and um, it helps, you know, give my patients the confidence that I am highly trained in my service because there's so many different areas of nursing that you can be part of. So to know that your nurse is specialized in the area that they are taking care of you helps bring a certain level of confidence to the patient. So if we want to compare that to our national certification, number one, she's paying $75 a year for it. So there's that. Uh But again, number two, it's a specialized certification. So it's not like this general certificate of clinical competency that we're all paying in to, to say that we are, you know, across the scope that we're competent. So hers is very practice specific and you can get a bunch of those. So we've talked about that, right? Like you get the degree and then you specialize or go off on a track. That's sort of, that's sort of like what she's talking about. And, and so, you know, it's a national certification product, but it is super specialized into the area of nursing that she's in. And by the way, she's my co-girl scout leader, not a lifetime member. (laughs) So she's, spending a lot of money every year on all these things. (laughs) But so, and I've, I mean, nursing is so interesting to me because it's all over the place. Like it just depends on where you are. And like, if you're working for a for-profit or non-profit, if you have a union, if you don't what the union status is, but I've also heard from nurses that a lot of times employers will cover the cost of those certifications because they want, you know, they're short staffed and 
they want people with credentials so they'll pay for it. I thought it was interesting that she said that they initially paid for it and now that they they don't. So she maintains it on her own. Her hospital system got bought out by a different system. So I have to wonder if when she got that, because she's been with this hospital for a very long time. She's actually the nurse manager. She like runs the place. Um, So she's worked her way up quite a bit. I have to wonder if just when she got it and when it was paid for, it was by the previous corporate Mm -hmm. owners and that the new one does not compensate them for that. Yeah. But they are, they're paying for her to get nurse practitioner right now. She's in school. They are paying for that. Wow. But not the certification. Yeah. Just the whole degree. (laughs) Yeah. And she's smart. You have to give like so much time after they give you the money for school. And so she kind of did the math. She's not entirely sure she wants to stay with them after she graduates. So she took the money from the beginning of the program. So like the first year she took the money because I think it's like 18 months you have to stay or something. Um, So she took the money and it was paid for at the beginning, but then she stopped taking the money. So she won't be tied up with them by the time the program's over. And I was like, that was, Jane, that was genius. Good for you. Yeah. 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 Okay, this is Jim, an architect. Hello, my name is Jim, and I am a retired architect. I was uh, licensed uh, by my state uh, in actually two other adjoining states. I did belong to a national association, which was the American Institute of Architects, and um, did belong uh, to that uh, primarily because it was the culture of our firm. Uh, we were strong supporters of uh, both the national and uh, state level of the American Institute of Architects. Also, the annual conferences uh, we felt were valuable, uh, both the speakers um, and uh, learning content, but also uh, access and to be able to see the design competitions and awards. And then thirdly, the access to contract and construction-related documents. Uh, was a big benefit uh, as we used quite a bit of those. Um, I did uh, belong to my state association as well, and that I'd say was primarily a promotional thing, uh, that collectively the state organization did a good job of promoting the profession locally and within the state. Also, um, uh, there's a strong... um, group that uh, organized and and uh, and we participated in state and regional design competitions so we were able to do that more locally I did purchase a national certification uh, I would say that that was primarily uh, because uh, at least in the work that we were doing or I was doing professionally it was an indication of credibility with clients um, Clients are our clients, uh, which were primarily institutional clients, um, had an expectation that they were working with licensed design professionals. So that is my dad, and he is what we affectionately call a boomer. And I will say that if you go on social media, the exact same conversation is happening about AIA 
and architects being fed up having to pay for the AIA certification as SLPs are fed up having to pay for ASHA certification. And so again, I mean, I just, I think a lot of this is a generational thing and millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y, is that the next one? What about Gen X? What about Gen Gen X? X. Okay. Yeah. We'll start with Gen X, millennials, Gen Gen Y, Gen Z, and the alphas that are in daycare right now. Like, I think we're all just realizing that these systems were built by people who wanted to maintain control. And like our, our country and our world is just kind of going through this sort of conversation and dialogue around like are those systems still serving us and is that really how we want to move forward and especially when these organizations are making millions of dollars off of these certifications and like conflating themselves as certification like selling a certification product and then also being a membership association it's like it's really hard to advocate for your professional members and control them at the same time. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. But I think for the baby boomer generation, it's just a more comfortable position to be in. And like they, I think from what I can tell that generation in general, not everybody, but in general, they feel more respected when they're aligned with a larger organization And I think that younger generations just don't feel that. And we're, we expect a lot more accountability and transparency and we're just not getting that. So. I think that's very well put. No notes. I agree. Okay. Moving on to Katie, who is a respiratory therapist. My name is Katie. I am a respiratory therapist. I do belong to my national association because it is a requirement to practice in my field. I do belong to my state association because it is required of me to practice respiratory therapy in my state. I do purchase a national certification because all employers require it. Yeah. So I got the numbers in front of me. I talked to Katie about that national certification purchase. There are different levels and you get things with those levels because- Really? Yes. So she, um, so there is the print level and at the print level, I believe she is getting one journal in print, $90 a year. And then there's the, the one plus one level where she's getting journal access via the World Wide web plus maybe that's just it. Anyway, Eighty four twenty five a year, eighty four versus <laughs> our two twenty five, and they do have free CEU offerings regularly because she she said, well, it does help with my CEUs, and I said, well, tell me what that means. So um, they get CEUs and they track them as part of that cost. So Asha. If you want to be a part of the ASHA CEU registry, it's $28 a year. They have that for her. It's included in that cost. What? Yeah. 
<laughs> so it's it's required in her state or or it's required to practice. But there again, this is what SLPs are screaming. If we saw value in this, yeah. we would pay it. And and she does see value. She doesn't feel any kind of way about how I mean at 90 bucks a month, and I she's I don't think she gets the journal in the mail. So at yeah. 80 or yeah, 85 bucks a year. Okay, you're tracking my CEUs, so I don't need to do that. You're giving me CEUs for free, or at least some of them, so I don't need to do that. You know, it's I'm getting the journal access. Okay. Like to me, that seems like a valuable thing. So it is required, but they're getting there. There's a yeah. return on that investment. Yeah. My brother yeah. sent me a photo of his respiratory therapy national certificate. Like he's very proud of it. And I think they all feel like they work hard for it and it means something to them. <clears throat> and my brother pays, he was telling me, I'm not going to get this perfectly right. So if it's wrong, just know that I know it's wrong, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of like $25 every two years for his Colorado state license. Mm. So like all up, it's a very affordable way to maintain your credibility as a respiratory therapist, which is a younger field. And, you know, they're kind of in our same boat where they're trying to establish who they are in the medical system in particular. But I would also say that like, they just, they have an association who's doing a great job advocating for them and, communicating the value that respiratory therapists bring. This is going to be so naive of me. I probably shouldn't say it. And I hope Katie's not listening because she'll yell (laughs) at me. I I would imagine their scope of practice is not as broad as ours. The lungs are the lungs are the lungs and they have certain therapies and drugs and machines that they need to know everything about. I feel like some of that level of knowledge is like, insanely yeah. good so smart yeah. but not as broad yeah. and and so i in terms of advocacy there's less to advocate for so you can pound it so hard yeah. in speech pathology it's like caseload workload productivity yep. billing codes schools hospitals home health like it's way too broad there's no way i don't know this it's respiratory like an adjunctive service do they have cpt codes and billing codes like nursing i, There's no I, billing I don't code. know this but i'm going to say yes because okay. they're administering they're administering treatments okay well nurses administer treatments and they don't have billing codes okay so i mean well are we sure about this don't they i'm almost positive because I I think Jamie and I have talked about this before. I vaguely remember her saying the hospital can't bill for anything we do. I was talking to a nurse here in Missoula and she was saying she was just floored because the hospital was trying to save money by having nurses put in their own billing codes. Oh. And she was like, that's so unethical. And like, we're oh. not trained to do that. Okay, maybe that's just at her hospital because I just did a quick little Google and it came up Ohio stuff. A visit conducted by an RN for the provision of PDN services must be billed to Ohio Medicaid using a TD modifier. So it looks like there is some billing. Yeah, I I think it's maybe as a nurse manager, maybe as what she does, nothing's billable. Maybe that's what she meant. 
Oh, maybe. She's running yeah, around. And I think, again, it's different in it. every place. But like SLPs will put in billing codes, right? Yeah. So so that's why, like, when my nurse friend was, like, floored about this, I was like, well, we do that all the time. Like, what are you so worried about? But it, I think it probably gets a lot more complicated with nursing billing codes. Yeah, probably. Did you have a thought about respiratory therapists and billing codes? No, I just wondered. Indirect. I just wondered oh, okay. if there was, like, advocacy at that level in terms of, like, encroachment and who gets to bill their codes and what they're billing for I mean because we just have all we have all of these issues that are so broad and they're doing such a good job but I just think it's probably less and that's not an excuse for Asha not to be doing that for us but I could see how they're more effective yeah it's also like I mean there's maybe like when I hear my brother talk about the money that he makes I'm like why would anybody get why would why would anyone take the time and money to get a master's in speech pathology when you can pretty much make the same or more with an associate's degree in respiratory therapy because there's such a shortage and it's a real shortage it's not like the quote shortage of SLPs that exists only because employers are undervaluing them and like posting these horrible salary rates there's a real shortage and like, so he'll get like a $700 bonus for covering a shift and like stuff like that just doesn't happen for SLPs. And so if anybody's listening to this and they're considering a career in speech pathology, check out respiratory therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was insane. COVID times just Jamie, Katie and I, so my RN friend, Katie, the respiratory therapist and myself have all been best friends since we were three. And so we have had an ongoing group chat for many, many, many years. And just listening to the boatloads of money they were making during COVID was, I mean, I almost <laughs> jumped ship them like maybe this is time for me to go back to school because it was insane, insane how much money and obviously they were dealing with way more than we were dealing with, right? Yeah. Yeah. We weren't proning people and, you know, choosing who gets the the trach or the vent and who doesn't get the vent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's Jamie was literally stacking bodies in a morgue. I, you know, awful, 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 awful things. So they were being paid for their work. But man, did I choose wrong? <laughs> As every year I just keep getting paid cuts. <laughs> yeah. And imagine if we had a national association that really differentiated the roles of SLP so they could better advocate. Or if we just had separate associations, if we had a medical speech pathology association, they could just like go after these things and just get it done as far as reimbursement rates and helping hospitals understand the value of the SLP, renaming that part of the profession. Like, oh my gosh, like it's, I just feel like we're so stuck. We're stuck in 1925 by these assholes basically that founded the association that were super elitist tried to keep everybody out and then in the 1952 or whatever they're like oh, okay you can come in but we're gonna differentiate you like it's just like we're just stuck and we're stuck there because we're all continuing to pay asha when it's like there are so many different ways we could be doing this and i hope anybody listening like if you want to start an association do it like <laughs> 
if you want to come up with an alternative way and get SLPs on board, like there's nobody stopping anybody from taking attention and power and money away from ASHA. There's no ASHA, there's no guarantee that ASHA is going to stay in its place um, and continue to sort of rule the roost of SLP. They're not entitled to that position, even though they think they are. So we are going to move on to Mary, who is a physician's assistant. My name is Mary Honard. I am a physician assistant. I am currently uh, certified in both my state as well as nationally as it is required to practice in my profession. I do belong to our national organization as they offer continuing education units as well as discounts on educational seminars as well as updates on the current status of the profession. I am not currently a member of our state organization but am planning on joining in January for similar reasons for the national organization. So Mary also, she wasn't completely transparent. <laughs> Mary <laughs> is moving to academia in January. Um, oh. It just so happens to where I work, um, which is crazy because um, I Mar Mary started as an athletic trainer when I played basketball in high school and is just <laughs> randomly now um, moving into academia. So anyway, that is why she has to join in January because it's required in academia, just like the CCC is required for me. But watching this physician's assistant program operate in terms of their accreditation standards is freaking insane. Um, that program is on probation now because they, and, and not because the educators aren't good, but because for accreditation, they even have specifics of who can be employed. So the chair of the program has to have certain qualifications and meet certain standards to even chair a program. And that's where they were, that's where they were deficient in. That was their area of deficiency. So they didn't, you know, they're, they're, a candidacy program, basically, like we would have. And so that's why they're sort of on this probation, because the chair that they had left, and then they couldn't find just like speech pathology, you know, there's a lack of these PhDs. Um, they couldn't find someone to fill the position. And, and it's filled now, and they'll be fine. Um, but that's why she's joining. That's why she's joining in January. But again, <laughs> some free CEUs there. There's some value. And yeah. sure. I don't think she said this. I think when we were talking, they have to retake their boards every 10 years. Mm. So every 10 years they have to retest, which I, and their national certification isn't like a praxis. They control that board exam that is administered. They administer the board exam. So that sounds a lot like the American Academy of doctors and surgeons and they're and they tried to start a lawsuit um to push back against that and basically say that these tests were poorly written and people were having to spend a lot of time away from their families away from their jobs quote studying for these tests and it was really just a measure of how well they could take this test versus if that actually applied to their clinical skills. And so I imagine that maybe the physician's assistant world probably tends to align a little bit more with what's going on with doctors. 
but it sounds like that is not a perfect system at all because you have a conflict of interest where like if you want to be a pediatrician you have to be board certified in pediatrics and you have to pay to take this exam and it sounds really good because it's like oh we're making sure that these people are competent and they have to retake the test every so many years but in reality the doctors are saying that the test is poorly written and doesn't actually you know equate to good clinical skills so maybe it's a similar situation there it's hard to tell but i think you know one thing that one move that asha could make in response to this or other criticisms is to start requiring the praxis every few years and then i think all that would do is spark a conversation about how poorly written the praxis is and like you shouldn't have somebody who's specializing in autism have to take a full scope certification test every however many years. Um, And then that would get us into a conversation about specializing in specialist licensing. And that's kind of the conversation that we're wanting to have anyway. And I think we should do it without ASHA because ASHA has not demonstrated the ability to do these things very effectively. Did you have any more thoughts, Jeanette? I was talking a lot because Jeanette was moving around in her house to find a new location. So yeah, I'm just going to either run- keep talking or no. <laughs> we're running over. And again, in the last episode, I said, you know, we're not running a Fortune 500 company. We're doing this in the middle <laughs> of life. So my daughter is, in fact, starting voice lessons directly above me. So I will try to stay on mute. I don't know what this <laughs> microphone is going to pick up. But um. I I just asked Google if physicians assistants specialize and it does look like they have the ability to specialize in one or several areas. So that I don't know how that test works and how well written it is, like you said, but I have to wonder, too, then if it changes based on specialization or if it's a general across the scope type of test like the praxis. And Asha could absolutely just write and administer their own test for PEDS or for healthcare. You know, again. Yeah, I don't know how the National Testing Services Company got involved, but that's where it is. I have to wonder, again, speculation, the praxis administers the tests for teachers. Yeah. So is that how we got in a up in that as you know starting as mostly people and teachers salaries who worked in the schools yeah was that why and it just snowballed from there and we're still I mean yeah tied we're still there it's like a time warp this field yeah it's like no progress progressed at all and we're just stuck what other professions do we even know this what other professions take the praxis other than teachers and speech pathologists it's a lot Right. It's all, I know there's a lot of praxis tests, but they're, um, I think they're all, at least a lot of them are education based and based on how, you know, are you K to three? Yeah. So I guess these are all teacher topics. So agriculture, algebra, art, biology, business, education, chemistry, Chinese, communication and literacy, computer science. I mean, it's like a very, very, very yeah. long list that I'm it's scrolling through. So I think it's all based. teacher, yeah. And then you just stick speech pathology in there. That's how we got yep. tied up in this. And Asha just won't move on for the love. Yeah. Let's, let's fix SLP. 
<laughs> okay, we're going to talk to an occupational therapist named Megan. Hi, my name is Megan, and I'm an occupational therapist licensed in Ohio. Um, I do not belong to my national or my state association because I don't see a lot of value in them, um, for, especially for the cost. I don't believe they are very supportive. Um, and I do purchase the national certification. And mostly that is because it just wasn't explained to me in school. It just wasn't assumed this is what I'm supposed to do. And um, I'm now realizing that I do not need to maintain that national NBCOT in order to practice in my state of Ohio, um, only for initial licensure. So I may be dropping it. So OT is interesting because they have the American Occupational Therapy Association, AOTA, and then they have the National Board Certification of Occupational Therapy, NBCOT. Those two are separate. They have nothing really to do with each other. Some OTs comment that they compete with each other, which is healthy. Um, and the NBCOT certification is required to get an initial state license in a lot of different states. And then it gets a little murky and confusing if the state requires somebody to keep an active certification. But the difference with NBCOT certification is that it's $65 every three years to renew. And they don't have to retake a test or anything. They do have to demonstrate continuing education completion, but $65 every three years. And so I think that's why a lot of OTs hang on to it is because it's relatively cheap. And then they don't have to worry about like if an employer wants it or if a state licensing board wants it and they have to move to a new state. I also got a text from Johnny. He didn't have time to record, but he said, I am an occupational therapist. He's licensed in his state. He does belong to his national, to AOTA, because he believes in sharing his opinion and contributing to task forces and utilizing the evidence-based content um, that they do provide for their members. And he also belongs to his state association because he's seen the advocacy efforts and wants to provide additional support. And then he also maintains his NBCOT certification because he is proud of it. And he's seen their efforts firsthand through experience volunteering with them to hold uh, OT profession to high standards. Um, however, he says all of his employers have reimbursed for its renewal. And then I will also add that this OT is in academia. And so I think we see a similar thing in OT where you have academic OTs being like, yay, it's wonderful. I see so much value. It's all advocacy, blah, blah, blah. And then practicing OTs are like, I don't, I don't get any value from it. So, and again, it's because just schedule wise, logistically, academic therapists just have more time to participate in these associations. And that's great. Like they should, and that's wonderful, but it shouldn't be a situation where then all of the therapists who don't have time to spend to be a part of that are forced to pay. And that's not the case with AOTA. Their, their membership is quite a bit lower than ASHA because it's completely optional. I, before we move on to the next one, um, I just, I, 
had a thought. I had something I wanted to say about Bethany, who was our first one. And it came to me as you were talking. I forgot to say that Bethany, who, if you remember, she was the counselor who really isn't a member of anything. She told me that she used to be a member of her national organization when she first entered the field, but once it expired, she didn't continue it for long. And I said, did you join because it was something that your graduate program pushed on you? And she said, yes. She said, <laughs> they they push it. They like touted the value of it. And then I didn't actually see the value once I was in the field. So very similar to speech. Yeah. And I wanted to, as I was thinking and getting ready for this, I wanted to mention too, that I think it is ludicrous that we have a student rate for our students to become NISLA, national NISLA members. <laughs> They should be free. They should be free. And it's such a racket because I am a NISLA advisor. So I am intimately familiar with what is required. So NISLA gives the bronze, the silver, and the gold award. And it's, it's an honor because these students work hard to do philanthropy and fundraising and advocacy and all of the things that they need to do to earn these awards are good. Except I have a problem for if you want the gold award, it is a $200 donation that the chapter has to make to the scholarship fund. That's how they they make ASHA makes money for their scholarship fund off of our students who are working so hard to earn these awards. And I won't say win because anybody who does the work can earn the award, but also to get that award, there has to be a certain percentage of your NISLA members because you can be a NISLA chapter without having your students in national NISLA. You don't have to be affiliated. You can have a NISLA chapter, but they don't have to join national NISLA. But if you want to earn the bronze, gold, or silver award, you have to affiliate. So every year I have to reaffiliate and fill out paperwork. And then a certain percentage of your membership has to be paying to be part of National NISLA, including including your um, exec board or, or members from the exec board. So we have a mix, an undergrad and grad um, NISLA chapter, and our department pays for our grad students to be NISLA members, but not the undergrads. So all of the all of the students who are officers for our NISLA chapter who are undergrads, we then have to pay for them too. So our students can earn this. They last year was like the first year we were active and established. They earned the gold award, but at last minute I was getting these, these undergrads registered and we had to make that $200 donation. And I just think it's a racket. We should be letting them in for free as we introduce them to our field. That is all I have to say about that. Yeah. And they do the gift to the grad. I don't know if they're still doing it, that, doing that or calling it that, but like you have to pay for your initial membership, your entire grad school career, and then you get like a lousy discount. It's two years. So you have to be a national NISLA member for two years. And then yes, you get a discount. And I've seen a lot of conversation about this on socials right now, because there, I think there's a cutoff. So if you, if you start your CF, and you finish, you pay, it's five, I think it's $515. Mm-hmm. 
you pay you pay that that like before a certain point, then you do have to renew right now when the rest of us are renewing. And then if it's after a certain point, like I think if it's after May or June or July or something, then you don't have to renew right now. So it's slightly prorated, but it's not, I don't know. It's it's hard for these new grads um, who are paying that and and now renewing for 225. They're not getting a full year for that 515. Yeah. yeah. And That's and I don't bullshit. know if that 515 is with or without the discount, but what I mean, man, they are preying on these ki- not kids, these students right from the beginning that you have to yeah. pay into Nisla for 2 years to get this discount. Well, what is the discount? Maybe they should have just saved the money and paid. And, and then, too, to, like, get this award that they are doing so many good things to earn. You got to donate. Universities should just, you should just you make donate. your own award. Like, if it's just putting it on a resume, just but make Megan, your own Megan, we can advertise that as a, a gold chapter for students to come apply to our program. Does anybody care? Does anybody even know no. what Nishla is? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess undergrads would if they're involved at the. You could also advertise that you have an awards program. I don't know, like, (laughs) no. My students do a great job. I love them. They're they're wonderful. But it makes me mad that as their fund, you know, money is already so hard at the university level. So as they are, as they are working hard to fundraise and earn money and have money to go to things like our state convention, or if they want to go to ASHA, you know, the, like that extra $200 is just one more step they have to take. And, and thank goodness our university covers the cost of national NISLA. But when I was in school, we had to pay for it ourselves. Not every university yeah. is doing that for them. No, students, no for way. Students, for their students. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just one more burden. And, and again, it becomes an accessibility issue. Not every student has that kind of money. No. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's another racket. That I a soapbox I needed to it's get like, on. It's and like we're just grooming people for the system. That's exactly what we're doing, and that's I wanted to say all of this with Bethany at the beginning, but I my my brain doesn't always. Work. We weren't in the rhythm. Yeah. Okay. No, I wasn't. I was not yelling yet into the microphone. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Okay. We talked to two. Or we heard from two OTs. Now we're going to hear from a physical therapist. My name is Troy Adam, and I'm a physical therapist. I'm licensed in the state of Montana, and I am a member of the American Physical Therapy Association, as well as the Montana chapter. I choose to continually be a member because of the advocacy that they do for my profession as a whole, and because of the benefits that I receive as a member. I am also a board-certified neurologic specialist. I do this to demonstrate my expertise in the field of neurology, both to my patients, my employer, as well as other healthcare providers. So PT is interesting because like on the homepage of the APTA website, they say this is an optional membership association. (laughs) And like, it truly is. And what I've learned is like, people tend to have very strong feelings about ASHA one way or the other. OTs have strong feelings about AOTA one way or the other. 
APTA, oh, there's like a lot of ambivalence. There's like, I could, I could join it. I could leave it. I, they don't hate it. They don't love it. Like it's just there. And I would say that APTA has done a lot to advocate for the field of physical therapy. I think it's part of why there's a physical therapy clinic on every corner of every town and they are prepared to run businesses. They're prepared to understand insurance and how that works. They're prepared to advocate for themselves. Everybody knows what a physical therapist does. Like they don't have a lot of the sort of image barriers that especially speech therapists have because we're still using the name speech therapist from 1927. <laughs> Which I isn't guess- even our name. We are speech language pathologists. Oh, that is our, our actual name. Either, we're one, not- either one is bad. I know we might disagree, but yeah, I just... I- Oh, I I don't disagree with you, but I'm saying (laughs) we accept the name speech therapist and that's not even what we actually are. Like they, they, listen, they abolished that a long time ago. They actually did advocate for a name change to something equally as awful. (laughs) And that's where we landed. I mean, PTs have two wonderful names. They have physical therapy or physiotherapy like those are both great and the i will also say about troy he is he's a supervisor at the university clinic so there's a university tie there which might be why he's a member yeah um, of apta um and then i've met other pts who just they're not members but i do think a lot of pts buy they purchase the certifications that apta sells um and the way that APTA does that, you could you could say that it's a little bit asha e, in the sense that they've now created like, I'm not going to get this right, but it's a handful. It's like a dozen of these specialty certifications, and it's a similar kind of thing where you have to like take so many hours of continuing education and an exam and all this stuff. And then you get, that's why PTs have like 5 million letters after their names because they're buying all these certifications from APTA. But I will say it's one way that physical therapists have found to differentiate their specialties in a more uniform way. Another way, another thing that they have done and I, their tracks aren't split at the beginning But that DPT that they added, I believe that extra year that was added on to make it a doctorate program instead of a master's program was where they start to specialize. So I think it's a year of more specific clinical work in the area that they're going to go into. I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive that it's like that. And and as a consumer, as a consumer, I just had the worst case of BPPV uh, vertigo with the issues with the crystals in my ears. And I, I specifically sought out a vestibular physical therapist. So, you know, as a consumer, I was looking for that. I wasn't just going to go to any physical therapist I needed. I, I, and maybe, maybe I could have, but it was important to me to go to someone who was going to get me well as quickly as possible so I could get back to work because I couldn't drive. I, I, I was getting sick. It was awful. So they're doing something right. Yeah. And, and just so people are aware, ASHA, this, 
this is the model that Asha is looking at adopting basically is like, they're going to be selling these specialty certifications. Um, there's a separate board. Uh, I'm just looking it up well, right now. It's not even so that they're going to be selling them. They're going to be endorsing people who sell them. They're not creating these certifications. They're going to oh. endorse whoever out there selling this stuff. That's right. It's going to be more and like then a, they get exclusive rights. model. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to get exclusive rights for 18 months. So yeah. no one else can sell that ASHA, whatever certified. This is dangerous, you guys. This thing that's coming yeah. is dangerous. And I don't know how to stop it. If somebody has some ideas, come on down because this is this is going to hurt us. Yeah. You think you're paying too much money now? People start getting this crap. Then in 10, 15, 20 years, when everybody has like thought, oh, this will add, this will get me the job, this will get me the thing employers aren't going to know the difference. And so they are going to start looking for these people who have these certifications that are ASHA approved. And in 15 years, we're going to find ourselves having to pay $9,000 for a special certification that ASHA has endorsed and given exclusive rights to every 18 months. It's read about it, folks. It's coming and it's, it's not good. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that because that is a very different model. I mean, APTA has the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties, something like that, ABTPTS, and they're the ones that regulate these certifications. And I, I mean, again, you'll find physical therapists that have lots of different opinions about this. But I think on the whole, it was sort of like APTA was responding to a need Um and trying to do it as ethically as possible. I will also say that APTA, like when I was trying to get Therapy Insights able to provide speech, occupational and physical therapy continuing education, I could become a CE provider with ASHA and I could become a CE provider with AOTA, but I could not become a CE provider with APTA because they do not offer a continuing education provider program. And on their website, they were very clear at the time that I was looking that the reason they didn't offer that is because they saw it as a conflict of interest since they also sell continuing education. And so what you'll notice is like, if you buy the ASHA learning pass that is sold by ASHA with ASHA approving the continuing education, they don't have to have a third party looking at and reviewing their continuing education it's just self-stamped approval whereas APTA is like we we're not willing to do that and so APTA kind of contracts with different state boards basically to to approve all of their continuing education courses so I from for me personally I feel like APTA is just a much more ethical organization they're much more transparent they listen to their members more. There's more of a balance when you look at their board members. There's a balance of academic SLPs and practicing SLPs and consumers. That's that's a category that ASHA doesn't even have on their board of directors. You mean PTs. You were saying Sorry, they have yeah. academic SLPs. Yeah. Sorry. Academic PTs. Thank you. Um, 
<clears throat> so there's more of a representation and there's more voices in the room when they're making decisions, whereas ASHA is heavily, heavily, heavily run and influenced by academic SLPs. And again, if you're an academic SLP and you're feeling that frustration that we're not recognizing that you do practice, we're not denying that you're a practicing SLP too, but your position as an ac academic SLP puts you in an elite group and an elite status in this profession. And that's just because of our history and the way things have always been. And it's a cultural value and it's one that is heavily perpetuated by ASHA. Agree. <laughs> okay. Did we, oh, we have one more. We have Rachel. We have Rachel. The Ooh, dentist. I have things to say about Rachel. All right, here we go. Rachel. My name is Rachel and I am a dentist. I am licensed in the state of Ohio. In order to practice dentistry, we are required to pass national board exams as well as a regional exam. We are not required to purchase membership into the American Dental Association or the Ohio Dental Association or our local dental associations. I do opt to purchase membership to all three, um, mostly to support my local dental society I don't even think it's an option to only purchase membership into the local dental association. I believe you have to purchase national, state, and local. Um, being a member of my local dental association gives a sense of community that I found difficult uh, to find in the solo practitioner model that I was practicing in. Um, as far as a state and national level, I sometimes fail to see the benefit of those, but supposedly the ADA and the ODA protect the profession from dental therapists or lesser licensed um, individuals, and they lobby for insurance reform and more, supposedly. <laughs> okay, what do you have to say? Yes, the word supposedly. <laughs> She used the word supposedly twice. Sweet Rachel. Total boss lady. I mean, she, this woman owns, she has bought two dental practices locally. She has two offices. She is amazing. She was very transparent with me. And she said, and I told her, say this on your recording, but she didn't. The only reason she pays into this stuff is because of guilt. <laughs> so ding, 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 ding. She said they are, yes, she said they are dying. The state and the national associations are dying as dentists retire. And so, you know, I think with this optional model, you know, this is a risk of something happening. You don't force your members to join. It can die. But again, you have to show value. And she was saying supposedly. So she's not seeing the value out of these organizations. However, the man she bought her practice from, who has been a bit of a mentor, is heavily involved in the state and national associations. And he is beaming with pride and so <laughs> proud that she is a member of those associations. She said, I just can't bring myself to like not be a member, but <laughs> that it is they're dying and I feel bad and he is proud of me. And that, that is it. That's why. She <laughs> it. 
That's why. I mean, I guess that's like a smart economic decision because she's able to purchase a practice that will then give her an income. So that's valid. Again, here, here's the thing. She gets to choose. They're not. And and that's what we say. SLP should have options. You want to join? Do it. Yeah. But you shouldn't have to. And, and so she has that choice. And I have to wonder if she'll, if after this guy is <laughs> right. no longer with us or no longer cognizant enough to know what she's a member of, I have to wonder if she'll continue to pay into it. Um, but for now, that's her choice, right? It's, yeah. And it is, I remember, she, I swear she threw the number $2,000 to me. But I don't know if that was for all three and if I don't know if that was yearly or so, I, I don't know. I, I didn't think to ask her anything further about that. Um, so, but I do think it's a little pricier, but they're also yeah. making a lot more money. Yeah. Right. Not, not that, I mean, I don't think personally that you should pay more to an association if you're making more, like you should pay more to an association That's if it true. literally costs them more to do their job. Yeah. But I don't. <laughs> or if they're bringing more value, like if they're yeah. doing a bunch of things that are making you more money and are helping yeah. you as a practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we heard from 12 different professionals with 12 different jobs and they all do things differently. And I think that was just the conversation we wanted to have today is like, just because things are the way they are does not mean that that's how they always will be or could be or should be. And we just invite SLPs to think outside the box and like question why we're in this system and if it's really working for us. Oh, yes. I, I don't have anything to add. I just want to say if you stayed on this long with us, we were trying <laughs> to keep this under 40 minutes today. Like when I moved downstairs for voice lessons, we were supposed to have already been done. So if yes. you made it to the end, we appreciate you and love you. And so please go give us that five-star review. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly yes. you are a super fan. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You have anything else All to right. say, Megan? I don't think so. So think keep watching it all for our, the day. Yeah, keep watching our social because there has been more uncovered that will be coming out. We have more things to say. So thank you. Don't forget to share our content. Go rate and review. And thanks for fixing it. Bye. Bye, everybody. Hey everyone, it's Megan. I just wanted to add one more recording at the end of this that Jeanette and I didn't have a chance to talk about. This recording is from Sarah, who's a teacher, and I wanted to include it because she does mention national teacher certification. And this is relevant for any school-based SLPs out there. If you are offered more compensation for having the CCC, it's likely because you are on a teacher pay scale and somewhere along the line, somebody advocated for a higher compensation for teachers who are certified. And then they had to do the same thing for SLPs. And the cleanest way to do that was through the CCC. And 
I would argue that SLPs need to get off the teacher pay scales. They need to stop comparing teacher certifications to SLP certifications because they are not the same thing at all. And really, at the end of the day, SLPs should be compensated for what they're worth. Again, not compared to teachers. My name is Sarah. I am an elementary school teacher. I have primarily taught first grade and am now spending four years outside of the classroom as a teacher on special assignment and a cognitive coach for educators in my school district. I'm a part of my school district's teachers union, which is a subset of Ed Minnesota, which is also a part of the NEA or the National um, Educators Association. So I do belong to those associations primarily as a way to be in community with other educators um, to fund the ways in which they support me, the ways in which they support the students in our district, the ways in which they advocate for um, the needs of students, families, and educators on my behalf, and also the ways that they might support me if I ever need additional um, support from my union representatives. I am licensed by the state of Minnesota as an educator, and I need to take um, continuing education credits and build those up through over the course of five years and renew um, my accreditation and my licensure every five years. Um, I am not nationally certified. There is a national certification for teachers. There's a process to do that, including a large portfolio. Um, There are some places that offer some extra compensation for people who have national certifications. For example, um, a charter school that I almost worked at, you would get an increase of pay if you got that certification. For me, it's never been something that has felt kind of worth the time and effort of putting together in order to kind of receive that certification. I honestly, I know of one educator in my Um, in close proximity to me who has it. And it's just kind of random that I know that about her. So either other people I know don't have it or they, it's not shared (laughs) enough. Um, So that just kind of reiterates that it hasn't seemed something of particular value to me um, to seek out.